0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Rule of Law podcast with Matrix Chambers in association with Prospect Magazine. I'm Richard Hermer and I'm delighted to say that I'm joined for this edition by the original co-host of the podcast, Philippa Kavman. We had planned for this edition to examine the current United Kingdom Supreme Court, but as often happens, magpie-like, our attention is distracted by events overseas, and in this case, Israel. We're going to examine in this podcast the events that have been unfolding there over the past few weeks, in which tens of thousands of citizens have taken to the streets to protest against legislation that seems designed to increase governmental control over the appointment of judges and to limit the power of the judiciary by, for example, obstructing to the point of extinction the power of the Supreme Court to strike down legislation for breaching basic law. Week after week, Protesters have filled the squares and blocked the streets. They've been addressed by former heads of the armed forces and intelligence services, warning of an existential threat to the rule of law in Israel. And in a move that until very recently would have been thought unthinkable, members of the elite military units and fighter pilots have been declaring they would refuse to report for call up Now, although in the face of a general strike, the Netanyahu government announced a freeze on the proposals, that appears to be no more than a few weeks' pause, bought at the cost of further concessions to extreme right-wing factions in his ruling coalition. The country seems to be teetering on the edge. And what has brought it there is a widespread belief, at least amongst a significant proportion of of the country, in the importance of the rule of law. It seems to them to be something worth fighting for. Well, what we want to do in this episode is not simply understand the proposals for change, not simply understand what they are, but why it has taken these changes to the rights of the independence of the judiciary to get thousands onto the street in a country that many may think faces some other significant challenges. And we want to assess what the future likely holds as the Knesset returns from its holiday break and what also the implications are for those who don't enjoy the same rights as most of those marching on the streets, namely Palestinians living in occupied territories who look at the Supreme Court of Israel in a very different light to most Israelis. Now here to guide us through these topics and more is Mechal one of Israel's leading human rights lawyers, author, frequent op-ed columnist for Haaretz, which is effectively the region's guardian, uh, and a long-time friend of Matrix Chambers. Michal, lovely to see you. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you. So great to see you and to hear you and Philippa. So great to be here. Thanks. Oh, Michal, it's great to have you here.
2: Thanks for for being here to enlighten our listeners about what is currently unfolding in israel before you come on to to tell us in more detail about all the proposals that are on the table in relation to curbing the judicial arm of the state would be really helpful if you could outline for us the the constitutional arrangements in israel the particular machinery of the different arms of the state and their relationship to each other because i think it's important that the listeners understand the backdrop that, that provides to the way in which the judiciary has developed judicial review over the last however many decades, and in particular judicial review in relation to the basic law, that might help them to to situate these changes a little bit more concretely.
1: Right, so I'll try to summarize something that is a, a year seminar in law schools in Israel, but. In very general terms, um, we have three arms of government, the judiciary, executive, and the legislator. But we are a parliamentary democracy, just like uh, the UK. And in that sense, the, the, the executive controls uh, through its uh, coalition majority, the parliament. We do not have, like you have in the UK, regional elections. So that means that all members of parliament are basically dependent on their parties, and their parties are part of the coalition majority. So from the outset, our, the structure of our governance system is one where the parliament is handicapped and is controlled by the executive, by the government. Now, in 1948, when the uh, in the uh, Declaration of Independence, the people who established the State of Israel promised in the Declaration of Independence that by the 1st of October 1948, a constitution would be signed for the State of Israel. Well, they're a bit late, and they have <laughs> not done that until now. And it, 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 there are many reasons why it hasn't been uh, done, and I won't get into it. I'll just say that an agreement was reached that instead of writing a full-fledged constitution, the Israeli parliament will be handed the power to legislate basic laws, which would be of a higher normative status than regular legislation. So the same legislator that is controlled by the the executive uh, legislate regular uh, quote-unquote legislation, which is primary legislation, and basic laws who are segments of the future full constitution. Only s- very small part of what c- should be considered a full uh, constitution was actually addressed by basic laws that have been enacted in the last 75 years. And the the lacune in the creation of, sep- of, of separation and p- of powers and uh, checks and balance- balances and of uh, cementing uh, fundamental basic freedoms and human rights was done by the Israeli Supreme Court in a series of, in a, in, a, in a massive jurisprudence that began in the early 50s. The Israeli Supreme Court took it upon itself to create an unwritten constitution, set of principles and guides that allow uh, the, the Supreme Court to judicially review acts of uh, the executive. In 1992, and I'll end with that, in 1992, two basic laws were were legislated by the parliament, which uh, anchored several of the of human of the human rights. It's not a full bill of rights, but it's a very partial one. But it includes freedom uh, and 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 property rights and and uh, dignity and etc. And, and some other uh, right to livelihood and all kinds of uh, other rights. And what is important about those two basic laws is that it had in both a clause which says that Parliament will not legislate an act that violates those rights. And then there are several tests that were provided in that clause. The Supreme Court in 1995 declared that these two basic laws allow or uh, empower the court to strike out legislation, primary legislation for the first time, uh, which do not meet the tests in those two basic laws since then the israeli supreme court was extremely conservative in the amount of cases where it actually used that power and there were probably 20 maybe 22 uh, cases in the last uh, 30 more than 30 years uh, in which the court had actually found out that a certain uh, article in legislation is uh, unconstitutional now the current government is committed to revoke that power that the Israeli Supreme Court has.
2: And are they are they going to do it by changing the basic law to revoke those clauses that say that no law should be enacted that is contrary to this these provisions? Or are they going to do it by other mechanisms?
1: So there are several um, proposals that are on the table and they are part of a huge, what they call reform, what I will call a complete regime change, a complete constitutional revolution in which the end goal is to create a governance system where you basically, for every aim and purpose, have only one arm of government. And that's the executive that not only controls the parliament, as I described, but also completely controls uh, the judiciary. So uh, Can, just on that point, just just quickly, just to interrupt quickly. It's
2: right, isn't it, that in Israel, parliament is a unicameral. Right. You don't have the equivalent of our House of Lords. So there really is no check at all Absolutely. on the
1: executive when it decides
2: what laws should be
1: enacted. Yeah. And, and, and that's how the Israeli right is uh, manipulating experiences from other countries. So, for example, they say, well, look, in England, you don't have uh, the ability of courts to strike out leg- primary legislation. Well, you took the zipper from a certain garment and you say it's the same. It's not the same because everything else is is different. All the checks and balances are different and all the characteristics of the governance system is different. So what they're planning to do here is, well, what they were planning is to either revoke completely the power of the court through a basic law to declare uh, legislation as uh, unconstitutional or and that was the other idea which was uh, already advanced with a bill to allow the parliament to override such decisions by a simple majority. So a simple majority that legislated the law that was de- declared unconstitutional by the court will have the power to override such a court decision, which, is, which means that there is no uh, judicial review uh, to such legislation or constitutional review. But that and, and the basic law itself is
2: not is not any more embedded, is it, than any other law. It's a simple
1: majority, I take it, that can revoke that legislation. Yeah, and that's another thing that because of that historical subversion, basically, we did not have a, You know, a people's assembly that legislates uh, a constitution, but rather we pass that power to the legislator, the regular legislator. What's the difference between an act of legislation of a regular law and of uh, a basic law? The only difference is that it is called basic law. And the court has made uh, some references that it will not accept that any law that is just titled basic law is indeed constitutional in its normative Uh, status, but rather the question, what is the content and what kind of issues it regulates?
0: So we've got proposals to effectively neuter the power of the judiciary to have oversight of the executive and parliament. Why? What's behind it?
1: Well, we have a combination of interests that met in this unholy, very right-wing Jewish supremacy illiberal, uh, and I would even say racist coalition. So you have three basic partners in that coalition. You have the Likud, led by Benjamin Netanyahu, you have the ultra-Orthodox, and you have the settler camp. I think the the, the driving force behind it is the settler camp. For them, the Israeli Supreme Court has been an obstacle in uh, rushing towards uh, a complete, Towards a reality in which Jewish Israelis are de jure perceived superior to other to other people, both citizens of Israel and those who are uh, under occupation, the uh, the possibility of expropriating property from Palestinians living in the West Bank was legislated several years ago in order to allow the uh, retroactive legalization of outposts, which are settlements that have not been officially approved, and most of them were built on private uh, Palestinian land. And I'm uh, very proud that I was one of the litigators against challenging that legislation, which was uh, revoked by the court. So while the Israeli Supreme Court was always a mighty collaborator of the settlement enterprise. It did have some restraining effect on how that enterprise should go forward. And while we had in the past a settler, a mainstream settler community that believed in slow progress, conservative slow progress towards their aim of having Israel annexing the West Bank without providing political rights to Palestinians, today's uh, settler camp wants everything now immediately and they don't want to hear of any slowdown. Uh, Now this camp not only has an issue with the supreme court's jurisprudence on Palestinian property but it also has issues with the supreme courts protecting some of the basic rights of Israeli citizens and mainly when it comes to gender issues, to LGBTQ issues, Uh, when it comes to personal uh, uh, freedoms from religion, things of that sort. And we'll get back to that because this is one of the reasons hundreds of thousands, Richard, not uh, tens of thousands, but hundreds of thousands of Israelis have taken out to the streets. And we'll get back to that later. Mm -hmm. So that's one camp. The other camp, the ultra-Orthodox, they have huge Uh, uh, issue with the court for church and state uh, uh, jurisprudence and because of the concern they have that the Israeli court uh, would once and for all uh, demand that they are drafted to the army because they have been exempted for 75 years, the ultra-orthodox, from army service while all other Israelis, Jewish Israelis, have been serving in the army and that inequality uh, is becoming more and more difficult for the court to accept. And then you have the Likud and Netanyahu. And I have to say, with a lot of embarrassment, that here the issue is Netanyahu's personal legal uh, problems. He is being, he has been indicted and he is tried for uh, corruption charges and for him crushing the judiciary is a personal issue, but also for his cronies in the Likud it's about corruption, 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 corruption. For them the ability to have to take out the judiciary and legal advisers of the table so that they could get, you know, bids, uh, governmental bids to their friends, to their family members, to their partners. This is something that they don't want any, uh, they want bare, bare, explicit power uh, concentration with them.
2: So that's the proposals, um, not so much about the basic law, but about filling the judiciary with friends. That's one so thing. It's,
1: it's changing the way judges are being uh, being nominated so that the coalition can control it completely by itself. And second, and not less important, maybe in a, on a day-to-day basis, even more important, the idea of transforming legal advisory uh, positions in the government, in the executive, to political appointed people and not career uh, in the, uh, lawyers who are who are subject to the Attorney General's professional guidance. That would be the end of Israel as we know it.
0: Can I ask you, and you touched on it just before, why it is that this issue has got hundreds of thousands of people out in the streets? I mean, I think it's probably since 1982, post-Sabra and Shatila was the last time there was these many, or certainly this percentage of the Jewish population of Israel out on the streets. Why is a rule of law issue touched a nerve in this
1: way? Yeah, in the 80s there were many people in the street, but in one occasion we're seeing here for three months people are going more than once, more than twice a week out to the streets in huge numbers. So I, I, I want to say two things. First, people are out on, in the streets because they are protecting their own rights. And this is, Israelis are not better not, nor worse than any other people. When it comes to their, our own rights, there is more energy and more urgency. Uh, To go out, and and I think wherever you look, how many white people went out to the streets to fight apartheid? There were, there were, but it was a small minority. How many white people went out to the streets uh, to fight uh, Jim Crow laws? There were, I think, more or less probably the same percentage as Jewish Israelis who are fighting against the occupation. So it's about our rights, but it's not only that. This government was stupid enough, this coalition was stupid enough to tell us exactly what they plan to do. It's not just, you know, the theoretical thing of changing the the balance between the different arms of government. They came to power with such unhindered energy, immediately proposing all those bills that allow, for example, gender separation in public spaces, discrimination on racial, on religious grounds of LGBTQ people, you know, all kinds of things that for the, what I call the sleeping giant. The sleeping giant is, are the masses of Israelis who are more or less liberal. They I don't know if they call themselves liberals, but they're liberals in their way of life. They are not religious, they're secular. They see, um, you know, uh, Western Europe as their neighborhood. And, and their culture is, uh, is a culture that is basically egalitarian when it comes to to men and women and so on. And suddenly, people were thinking my daughters would grow up in a country where the theater could have plays for men and shows for women alone, only audience. And that was just unthinkable. And that is why people went out because it was not just a theoretical thing. Things have started to be on the public agenda. Things that we never thought, you know, it was like uh, uh, in the past, it was only things that uh, in satirical programs in the television, uh, these kind of ideas were raised and suddenly they were out there. So the understanding that without the judiciary, this is our fate, that what drove Israelis out to the streets.
2: And, and how was that put on the public agenda? Was it just, you know, national newspapers was enough to get people moving on this
1: or was it more of a grassroots movement? No, I mean, the news about what is planned, of course, came through the media, through the mainstream media, which, again, when I say liberal in Israeli context, I don't want the listeners to get confused. It is not the liberal we understand in the European sense, because those lib- Israeli liberals are have a, a inner, you know, like a like a split personality. Because on the one hand, we engage in a, in a way of life that is similar to what liberals in Europe would call. But at the same time, we're very nationalistic when it comes to you know, uh, our, uh, the army and, and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and so on. So people could be, on the one hand, very right-wing when it comes to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and, and seem to be very liberal when it comes to the question of personal freedoms and so on. So w- when it comes to, to the media, for example, this is, again, the media. We have a very nationalistic media. I hate our uh, mainstream media when it comes to reporting on conflict. I think they are completely biased and, and so on. But when it comes to these issues, they were raising hell. And people immediately, and yes, it was grassroots in the sense that there was no leadership. People went out to the streets as if their life depended on it. And it became a, like a culture of protest that evolved with the people. Can I ask you about some of the people who weren't on the
0: protests? And sure. there, there are two uh, two sections of impacted communities I want to ask you about. And the, the the first of those Palestinians with Israeli citizenship, so those living within the green line, and at least from afar, it doesn't look as though. Many have been out on the streets. And when one looks at images, it's a sea of Israeli flags that one sees at the demonstration. Is that an accurate portrayal of what's going on? And if it is, what explains that? It is inaccurate.
1: It's completely accurate. And uh, I think there are two main pillars of reasons why we don't see the one-fifth of Israeli society, which are Palestinians with Israeli citizenship, in the protests. I mean, of course, there are some, but most of them are not there. The first reason is because for them to go out and protect the judiciary seems bizarre. They don't feel that they have been protected by that judiciary. They don't feel that they live in a democratic environment. And cry call of the demonstrations is protect Israeli democracy. They don't believe they live in a democracy. And I can understand their uh, argument, their concern. And so for them, it is more of a of a clash between jews and jews rather than them being part of it and the second thing and not less important they were not invited not really i mean the protesters wanted the numbers they wanted them for the numbers but they didn't do them one thing to make Palestinians feel wanted and welcomed, so yeah, the reclaiming of the flag, which was a big deal for the protesters uh, for ages. Uh, the Israeli left was very had the mixed feelings about the Israeli flag because on one hand it is the flag of our country and but on the other hand, it symbolizes many things that like the occupation that that we oppose in this protest, it was a, an, an issue for the what became the funders of the protests. And you know, the funders be- have become also the ones who are in many ways uh, leading it to reclaim the flag from the Israeli right. So the flag of Israel, which is a, has a Jewish symbol, is not something that is very welcoming to Palestinians. The slogans of uh, a Jewish and democratic state is not something that is very welcoming Palestinians. The protesters didn't even manage to, to agree that one of our demands or one of their demands would be to revoke the nation state law, which makes even officially the Palestinians a second-class citizens. So all of these put together made the Palestinians, I mean, when you poll them, they are in favor of the protest, all of them. When you poll them, they are against the reforms or the judicial overhaul. They are against it. But they, it wouldn't take them out to the streets.
0: So in terms then of Palestinians living in the occupied territories, we assuming that that kind of dissonance is, is magnified many times and indeed unable to travel to demonstrations, even if they wanted to. Be interested in what the take you have from Palestinian friends living in the APT and colleagues of yours working in Palestinian human rights groups in the APT as to what's going on in Israel. And then secondly, just is there any seeds of hope in what we see now the fact that israelis are coming out in such numbers for a cause that is a progressive cause is there any hope that this can be this moment can be harnessed or galvanized and refocused on occupation and not just internal politics
1: well for for palestinians living in the occupied palestinian territory this is completely a non-issue they have not been living i mean the kind of uh, um, status quo before November 1st, which was the Israeli elections, uh, which was basically as if what the protesters want. They want to go back to reality as it was before the idea of uh, making the judiciary uh, weaker emerged. This is, of course, a non-starter for uh, for Palestinians. They have been in that reality for fifty-six years, still counting, no end in sight. And they have all the things that the uh, Jewish Israelis are now protesting against: separation of powers, freedom and basic rights, strong judiciary and independent judiciary, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. They don't have it, and no one went out to the streets for them to have it. So for them, it's. Uh, I have to say, for those who are more into understanding Israeli society, among them, I think they feel, as I do, that there might be an opening here. And here I address your second uh, half of the question. Because what the Israeli society went through in the last three and a half months is an amazing collective civics lesson on what democracy is. We have been stupidified for so long telling us that that what democracy is and what Jewish democracy is and suddenly every small kid, a toddler, tells you that democracy is not just about the rule of the majority, but the rule of the majority is uh, uh, drowned in values and so that is, that creates, that's a crack and that creates opportunities. Because if we are entitled to that, maybe others are entitled to that too. And can there be a democracy with occupation? We, the anti-occupation movement in Israel, are participating in these protests and demonstrations every week. And we have what we call the anti-occupation block within the big demonstrations. So there are 200,000 people in Tel Aviv every Saturday evening. We are several thousands within that. We have our own speakers. I, had the privilege of, of giving a, a, a speech in one of the demonstrations. And we are trying to connect those people who come to the demonstration and tell them, look, we are all fighting for democracy. But you should know there is no democracy with occupation, definitely not with a long-term occupation and an apartheid system like we do have.
2: And are you seeing any
1: evidence that this education in democracy is opening their
2: eyes to the inconsistency?
1: It's too early. But what I can say, what I do see is, that as time passes, there is less and less agreement among the masses to go back to November 1st. Suddenly, this genie is out of the bottle. Suddenly, people got it. There are things that we thought that are not done, and there are no such things. When the right person, the, or the wrong person, comes in, uh, uh, to power, he or she may do what they have tried to do now. So we cannot go back to this... Gentleman or gentle person agreement that the parliament can uh, legislate whatever basic law they want. No, 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 no. We have to have a different social contract. The social contract was uh, cracked. And in this, in this understanding, which is a very deep one, definitely for a popular understanding, I think the idea that we cannot keep, continue dominating millions of people who have absolutely no political rights that is something that can creep in. And that's what, that's the challenge of my friends and mine in coming months. So I, it's too early to say whether this is there, but I can tell you one thing and maybe a sign. Our presence in those demonstrations, and sometimes with Palestinian flags, is tolerated much more than it was in protests against Netanyahu two years ago in Balfour. <laughs>
0: I suppose I should actually end the discussion now because there's 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 a, like an optimistic hint. <laughs> Yeah to what come but there is one other question I need to ask you about because there's a there's been a, a a legal development that I think has passed most people by but is legally quite profound um with the new government and that is in terms of the status of the occupied territories and how they're governed so many but not everybody will know that it's been a de facto controlled by the by the civilian Israeli government but actually de jure it's is is a military occupation and could you just explain What that recent change has been because it would seem to be utterly profound legally yeah but people it's i think it's passed certainly outside
1: of israel most people buy so i'm i'm one of the things that that i I see as a challenge to me and that's why i do a lot of briefings on these issues is that everybody knows that this new government in israel this very right-wing radical right-wing government is planning a, a revolution in the system of governance in israel but in fact, this government is about two revolutions. One of them is in Israel, the other is in the way we govern the West Bank. And that revolution is written very explicitly in the coalition agreements, in, th- in hundreds of clauses that uh, my friends and I have analyzed closely and, and are trying to, to share our insights with the world. This government has made a commitment and already started to carry out a transfer of administrative power from the military uh, government of the West Bank and I remind our listeners that according to international laws of belligerent occupation a military government should be set in an occupied territory it should be a temporary government that only administers the territory until a final status is achieved in, in, in consent. So that is what we had for the last 56 years. Now this government is transferring powers from the military commander to a new position that was set in the Ministry of Defense. They call it a minister within the Ministry of Defense. I will call it a governor, because it's basically a governor, a new governor for the West Bank. At the moment, according to the agreement coalition has reached, the powers that will be passed to that governor, who is uh, our our, um, finance minister and the uh, leader of the Religious Zionist Party, the most extreme party in the Parliament, right-wing party, a person who calls himself a proud homophobe, and a a person who explicitly advocates for an apartheid regime. Uh, He calls it democratic deficit, but uh, let's call it the the way we should call it a a, a regime in which only Jews have uh, a right to, to vote in the West Bank. So anyway, he now holds powers that are civil, civilian powers, such as planning and construction, infrastructure, commerce, you name it. And the idea for him is to unify those administrative powers with the Israeli governmental public authorities that have the same powers in Israel. So that's basically stretching Israeli sovereignty beyond the Green Line into the West Bank. And in other words, this is annexation. Something that is completely the your annexation. Something yes. that is completely forbidden under international law of the post-Second World War.
0: So we've moved from, as a matter of law, we've moved from de facto annexation to de
1: jure annexation.
0: And as you say, completely irreconcilable with international
1: law. Well, if we're allowed to do it, why Vladimir Putin is not allowed to do it in Crimea and in, in, in other areas of uh, I mean, one of the pillars of the new world rule-based order of the, se- of the post-Second World War is the idea that we don't use force in international relations except in self-defense. And in order to cement that idea, the prohibition on annexation was founded so that there will be no incentives to go on a war of aggression. And if we allow occupiers to annex uh, occupied territory, then we are incentivizing wars of aggression and that is something that the international community must resist well look my hopes of ending on an optimistic note are completely gone <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, should have, no. we should have left it at the question before last a much more uplifting ending but no, but no, it's I'm not thinking... the end it's not the end we'll, you, let's meet again in a in, in several months and maybe let's we'll meet have... again <laughs> what a great idea
2: let's see where this goes because on all fronts these these things are rolling on and who knows where this is all going it certainly ain't over
0: absolutely and we just keep hoping that the arc of justice truly does go in the right direction yeah 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 Michal, thank you so much for joining Thank 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 you thank you
1: both and it's a pleasure being with you thank you very much